Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloh. It's hard to pick out one person as the environmental conscience of our nation, but you can certainly make a powerful case for our guest, Bill McKibben. Since his seminal book in 1989, The End of Nature, McKibben has been a leading voice, calling our attention to the dangers posed to our civilization and our planet by the human-caused warming of our world due to our using fossil fuels as the basis for our economy. In his new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, McKibben looks back on his life to the time when he was growing up in suburban America and how decisions made then by political leaders and ordinary Americans have led us to where we are now, in a deeply polarized nation that seems at times incapable of confronting an existential environmental crisis in a meaningful way. But McKibben also offers hopeful insights to ways forward so that we can try to avoid a planet that can't sustain civilized life as we've come to know it. What the hell happened, Bill? <laughs> it's a good question, Dave. What led you to decide to write this book? Because I know you as a longtime climate change activist, uh, very well known for that. Uh, what led you to decide to tackle this subject? Well, in a sense, of course, it was my ongoing work on climate and on, on justice work, um, because the world didn't turn out, I think, the way that I, I imagined it was going to. Uh, I think back to the beginning of this book, which was when I was in my adolescence in about 1970. And if you looked politically at the country we inhabited then, you know, there was plenty of turmoil and consternation the Vietnam War was raging. Watergate was a couple of years off. But things seemed to work in some sense or another. 1970, you know, there was the oil spill off Santa Barbara, and then there was the Cuyahoga River caught on fire in Cleveland. And then uh, 20 million people poured out into the streets for the first Earth Day, probably 10% of the then population of the U.S., and within a year, Congress had passed the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, and Richard Nixon, a Republican, had signed into law the Environmental Protection Agency. Ah, we had Watergate, which was brutal, but, you know, they kicked the guy out on his butt. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a second, because I just I just happened to catch all the president's men again um, recently and hadn't watched it in a while. And I was just struck by how when they're you know investigating and eventually bring down the presidency of Richard Nixon, Woodward and Bernstein, um, when we look at what's going on today, which I think is a, a big focus of your book – do you think that would even happen? Because it seems like today. Well, that's the, yes, that's the point I was I was going to make. Um, clearly not. I mean, who would have predicted then that we'd reach the point where the president of the United States would incite thousands of his followers to invade the U.S. Capitol and kill police officers in an effort to stop the counting of votes? Who would have imagined watching the Clean Air Act get signed into law within a year or two of Earth Day? that it would take 34 years between the moment when NASA scientist James Hansen told Congress about climate change and this August when we got the first climate legislation the Congress had ever passed, and which was nowhere near as strong as the <laughs> Clean Air Act. Um, you know, systems in a country that to one degree or another worked 
uh, ceased to work in the ways that we thought they did. And I wanted to understand why, uh, what had happened in our country. And I thought that that decade of the 1970s was probably a pretty good hinge to think about because <clears throat> it began with, you know, things like Earth Day and it ended with the election of Ronald Reagan over Jimmy Carter, which I think was the most fateful election of our my lifetime, uh, uh, an election where America chose to end the kind of group project and since the depression of one way or another, making the country better, building a great society or Dr. King's beloved community or whatever you wanted to call it, and instead substituted the project of letting markets figure things out, uh, working on our own individual wealth, uh, all the other things that, that Reagan stood for. And, and that shift in many ways still dominant in our political culture. Oh, it certainly is. So crucial that it was worth trying to understand what happened. And I thought that some of the answers lay in the suburbs, I must say. Yeah, let's go back to your childhood in Massachusetts. Uh, and let's talk about kind of each part of your book's title, um, The Flag, because I've always been, I, I feel a patriotic person. And I, I love the United States. I love my country. And I know it's flawed. And it's history is filled with terrible episodes. But it's, you know, it also has a lot of good to it. Uh, tell, tell us about your childhood. And, and you grew up in a very special place where patriotism was pretty much baked in because, you know, you're right there where the Revolutionary War started. That's right. I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, which was the first battle of the revolution there on Lexington Green. And indeed, my summer job as a boy was giving tours of the battle green as busloads of visitors arrived. And I wore my tricorn hat and, and guided them around the green and told them that story over and over and over again. Um, and it sunk in. And it is a great story. Uh, it is the um, arguably the first battle of people standing up against the largest colonialist imperialist force the world had ever seen. And uh, it turns out, as I did the work on the research for this book, that, you know, the things we've learned about American history in the last 50 years, the shadows and nuances and dark places of it uh, are as strong in that story as any other. Um, you know, I've kept learning things about Paul Revere's ride or the people who are on the green or things, and all of them important and difficult, but none of them that uh, undercut completely the uh, message that I I'd been telling as a boy, but did make it clear that we needed to make up for some things if we wanted to tell that story in the same spirit. There's a really a neat anecdote story in your book uh, in this section about a protest that happens and your dad and, and what side he winds up on. Could you tell us briefly about that? I sure could. Uh, this is the story that in some ways begins the book. Uh, Lexington and Green, because of its symbolic value and because the Vietnam War was at its height, attracted a protest in 1971, uh, a group called Vietnam Veterans Against the War, led by a lanky, handsome, charismatic young John Kerry, just returned as a lieutenant from Vietnam, wanted to bivouac on the 
Lexington Green as part of their protest that there was an ordinance against camping on the green. And so the town fathers refused to waive the ordinance and told them they couldn't do it and called out the police to arrest them. And when the police came, hundreds of townspeople, including my quite mild-mannered uh, father, sat down with them and all got arrested. It's still the largest single civil disobedience action in Massachusetts history. And it was important for me because I thought that this was, I was obviously, you know, since I was 10 or 11 at the time, it made a deep impression on me watching my father do that. But I think it also just made me think this was the way the current of history was running uh, in the direction of people standing up for a, a, a better, more peaceful, uh, more just world. As it turns out, that's not the only thing that was happening in Lexington at that time. Uh, I, when I went back to look at the newspapers to learn more about that, uh, I, I started understanding that that same spring in Lexington had had another political battle. Uh, this one over whether or not to build an affordable housing development in the town. And this, you know, this was because people were worried about uh, segregation and residential segregation and, and inequalities in wealth and things. Dr. King had been to visit Lexington a few years before. So the town fathers decided that they would put up a hundred unit affordable housing complex. And, but some people balked at this and demanded a referendum. And in the privacy of the voting booth, uh, Lexingtonians voted by a two to one margin to keep affordable housing out. And I, so to me, once I read that, it became the kind of uh, antipode, the opposite pole of that uh, protest on the green, a demonstration not of the wish for a juster, more equitable, more peaceful world, but a demand for um, a more selfish one. And I, I think the tension between those two visions of the world was what played out over the 70s. And, and by the end of the decade, I mean, well, California was playing a key role. It was by 1978 that, that you know, Californians adopted Proposition 13. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And that really had some very, and has, has had repercussions ever since. Yes, it had profound repercussions on education. Bill, to kind of compare my childhood to yours, bef be growing up in Southern California, you know, be before Prop 13, you know, public libraries were just everywhere and in a central part of community life and parks. And there was this, this feeling that there was, you know, funding for the public good. And then in state parks and things like, and then after Prop 13, you just see this gradual decay of that infrastructure. Well, it was, I mean, remember, this was the era when Ronald Reagan was Californian. Ronald Reagan was confidently informing us all that government was the problem, not the solution. And that the, you know, nine scariest words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The idea that government might do useful things like provide good schools for children or good parks for people to play in or whatever was replaced by the notion that, you know, I'm going to hang on to as much money as I can and screw the other guy. And 
And as I say, that was a large shift in America, maybe the largest shift ever. And I, I think it was that decade where it happened. And I think that it was the rise of property values in the suburbs that played a lot of the role in taking us there, uh, changing us in, in, in many ways. Now we had things to guard and, and that escalator of wealth has continued to grow and uh, result in the enormous inequalities and in wealth we see around us now. But that's, I think, its source, its taproot. Yeah. Well, back to the flag for a moment. Uh, because one of the things that struck me reading this book was that the United States flag has kind of been taken over by one segment of society. And that made me angry because it's my flag too. I may not be of the same political persuasion that you are, but I am just as patriotic as you are. And I just think people need to reclaim that a little bit. I agree with that. I think it was a big mistake for progressives to give up entirely on the flag because, as I say, American history is rooted in some very important things. Uh, it was the first place where we proclaimed the idea that people were created equal. We didn't live up to it. Um, uh, American history has been a long tortured process of trying to live up to it a little more fully. But that at least idea was out there in the air, and it is an important idea. You have made some very interesting points about how um, religious life was central to community when you were growing up, and I was growing up like in the 70s and 60s and before that. And then there's been this strange kind of shift to a different, a different mode of religious worship, if you will. Talk a bit about that. Yes, oddly, it, or maybe not so oddly, it echoes what happened in our political life. So, you know, when I was young, in say 1970, roughly half, a little more of Americans belonged to one of what we now call the mainline Protestant churches. They were Presbyterian Lutheran, Methodist, Congregationalist, uh, Episcopalian. Um, that number is now about 13%. So, and most of those people like me are old. <laughs> so it's dropped precipitously. Um, and to the degree that it's been replaced, it's been replaced with a different form of Christianity. Uh, that old mainline kind of liberal Protestantism was engaged, however fitfully and, and sometimes hypocritically, in that same project of making the world a better place. But evangelical Christianity is mostly uh, about a very personal, one-on-one, -on -one, almost contractual relationship with God. Uh, uh, it, it's you know marked by things like the prosperity gospel and the idea that the point is to um, um, come out of this with one's own salvation and perhaps one's own fortune in the process. And that's a very similar to what was going on politically as we shifted into this sort of hyper individualist mode. And I, I, I think it's had. Well, I mean, it's clearly had important effects on our politics. Uh, that evangelical voting bloc has become the most consistent and the most right-wing uh, voting bloc in the country, uh, motivated by some of the same kinds of, you know, selfishnesses in that sense 
that that motivated uh, uh, the Reagan block. Um, and I, I I think that it's a great shame because I think it comes not at all from what the Gospels are actually about. And theirs are radical documents, ones in which we're asked to take what we have and give it to the poor, um, ones in which we're asked to uh, take care of the sick and the hungry and the orphan. And instead, we now see Christianity as part of a political project that's about a kind of uh, libertarianism and a, uh, uh, helping those who have, not those who don't. And, and again, I think that progressives may have made a mistake in surrendering too easily to that. Dr. King definitely showed how much power there was for good in those symbols and in those stories. Um, but they've been largely given over now and probably difficult to reclaim. So you're telling me there's nothing in the Gospels about building gigantic houses on <laughs> pieces of property that you, you, you can seclude yourself on and accumulating as much wealth as you can by extracting it from the planet. Yes, there's a lot in the Gospels about all of that. It just tells you not to do it. <laughs> We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with environmental activist and author Bill McKibben. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with Bill McKibben, the longtime environmental activist and author of the new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. The third part is the station wagon. And uh, mm -hmm. for the record, I drive one. It's one of the, that's kind of, a, I guess you'd call it a hipster station wagon. It's an outback. <laughs> but uh, tell us a bit about that aspect of your childhood and, and what that means to you. Well, of course, that stood for, um, you know, for for this sort of idea of a modest but spreading prosperity that the suburbs were bringing in a way that we'd never seen before. And the car was absolutely at the heart of all that. Uh, the car was really what the suburbs were about. Without them, they didn't really make sense, um, you know, because that was how one got around between these spread out miniature palaces that we were constructing. And the car was the great symbol in many ways of how it all worked and nowhere more than in California, the kind of real birthplace of that car culture and of that suburbia. Um, but of course, a couple of things were going on, one of which we knew about and one of which we didn't quite yet. The first in the 1970s were these oil shocks that scared people and that began to make people question whether that dream could go on forever. And they were clearly one of the things that led us down this path of an ever more conservative Reaganite politics, his promise that it would be morning in America again. And if we just drilled everywhere we could, then 
uh, we'd you know, be able to keep on driving. And indeed, we have kept on driving uh, and ever bigger vehicles to the point where station wagons look, as you say, quaint and hipsterish uh, next to the giant SUVs that dominate our highways. Of course, the other thing that was going on, though in the 1970s, we didn't know it yet, was that we were spewing enormous quantities of what we now call greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. The single biggest puff of CO2 that humans have put into the air came from the suburbanization of America. Second uh, was the industrialization of China in the years that followed, but even that extraordinary project didn't produce as much carbon dioxide as the car culture of America. And so um, that's how we, you know, that's how we ended up on a badly overheating planet. Uh, and it's probably the you know, biggest of all the debts that we owe um, the rest of the world uh, is the fact that we've put most of the carbon up in the air that's causing so many vulnerable people so much misery now. Yeah, I saw I saw the strangest thing the other day. It was it was a Prius of all vehicles, and on the back of it was a bumper sticker that obviously had a different point of view than you and I do, um, where it said, "You know, my my car doesn't run on magic dust. You know, drill." <laughs> it was like, okay, <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, fair enough. If all you care about your car, then uh, you know that's I, I guess makes sense. Um, but the trouble is your planet runs on a, a fine balance of chemicals in the atmosphere. And we've now tossed those out of balance. And that's why, I mean, as I'm afraid people in Chico probably have a better idea than many, that's why, uh, you know, forests that had stood there for a long time with people in happily living among them are now catching on fire with some regularity. It's why Californians are looking over their shoulder for smoke eight months a year now it, it really is true um i know from that your your comment there is like every time i go outside now i and i don't even think about it i scan the horizon looking for smoke and i'm not even really conscious that i'm doing it i just do it because i'm always you know always want to be aware uh-oh you know it's time to get the go bag ready or whatever i i think that's a good policy and i gotta say the the pictures and the stories that came out of the Paradise Fire are as harrowing as anything I've ever read. Uh, the speed with which people's lives were turned upside down in the course of an afternoon uh, were one of the you know, true harrowing tales of the globally warmed world we're building. Yeah, I, I grew up in Southern California mostly, um, but I had family in Paradise. And so every summer when school would get out, uh, it was a Greyhound bus trip which I guess is a little more environmentally friendly than everybody taking their own car. Um, <laughs> Greyhound bus trip from San Fernando, uh, the, the the Greyhound station in San Fernando to Chico, California to get picked up by my relatives. And, and you know, Paradise was just such an idyllic, beautiful place to to grow up at. And it, it was just beautiful. And then uh, after over time, you could see things changing during that Reagan time. You're talking about more building, too many people trying to live there, too big, too, too many houses packed together. It was a ticking time bomb. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and all it took to light the fuse was 
the kind of drought and heat that we now can experience in a world where there's, you know, this much carbon in the atmosphere. You look at this pivotal point in history at the election of 1980 of Ronald Reagan, and it it was a much closer run thing between Jimmy Carter, who is, God bless him, still alive, and, <laughs> and Ronald Reagan. Um, and you, you document that, you know, that could have been a pivot point in history that could have changed things quite dramatically. One of the most interesting things about that election is that in the wake of those oil crises, Carter had developed the really first strong effort to build a big solar energy economy. He'd put money in the budget for 1980 that would have committed the U.S. to building out solar power so that it provided 20% of our power in the year 2000. Uh, had he done that, American history and world history would have been very different. There's no reason we couldn't have done it, uh, given some money um, to prime research and things. And if we had, well, uh, then we would have been in a very good place to deal with the news about climate change when it began to emerge in the late 1980s. Instead, Ronald Reagan climbed up on the roof of the White House and tore down the solar panels that Jimmy Carter had put there, and thus began a 40-year uh, kind of reign by the fossil fuel industry that's only now starting to ebb with the passage of this first climate bill. So yeah, uh, uh, history is a contingent thing, and it could have turned out differently. You have a very interesting story, a personal connection to those solar panels. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, it turns out that when Reagan tore them down, someone put them in a government warehouse, and then a professor at a tiny college in Maine, a place called Unity College, uh, took them from, you know, I don't know, bought them or something from the warehouse and took them up to Maine and put them on the roof of the college dining hall where they stayed for many years working just fine. Um, I found out about that. And during the first years of the Obama administration, uh, decided that it would be a nice idea to return them to Obama and see if perhaps he'd put them back on the roof. So we, I went up to Maine and borrowed not only the panels, but several students, and we drove south holding rallies along the way. And we got to Washington and tried to give them to the Obama administration, but they were having none of it. And the reason I think, as I sort of understood then and have understood much more in retrospect, was that they were just too scared of that taint of Jimmy Carter hanging over them. He lost they wanted nothing to do with <laughs> with Jimmy Carter or anything about it. And in fact, as Obama said in an interview a couple of years ago after leaving office, asked why he'd gotten so little done in a sense with 60 senators at the beginning of his term, he said, we were still operating in that Reagan world, that, that sort of mindset that markets solve problems that government should sort of get out of the way. Yeah, and and back to uh, the Carter administration. It's it's also I think worth noting historically that a, a huge role in that election was played by the Iranian hostage crisis. That's true, and it, it really is amazing right now to feel like we're living through sort of reprises of the twentieth century. We have our own oil shock, thanks to events in across the 
uh, across the ocean. Um, and it's stirring some of the same kind of politics, though even uglier now. Oh, certainly. Uh, okay, let's talk about some of the more hopeful lessons that you, you kind of end up on. Uh, you you actually feel like there is a, an important role that religious uh, leaders and all of us could be that, you know, whether you are, you know, a Christian or whatever, that there is a place for those, that spiritual component to trying to counter all of this. Sure. I don't think that Christianity is ever going to play the same role in our public life that it once did. And that's okay. You know, when more than half of people belong to these churches, they were almost by definition, baptizing the status quo, uh, uh, sanctifying the consensus. And in some ways, I, I think it's very interesting to imagine that um, religion could play that kind of countercultural role now. And we see some signs of it. Certainly within the environmental movement, there's grown up a kind of pretty robust and important uh, religious environmental movement over the last couple of decades. And it stands, you know, in contrast to that evangelical notion of things, and it's getting bigger all the time, really at its head now is Pope Francis, whose encyclical about climate change is a truly important document. And in fact, it was just released as a movie this week called Laudato Si, which was the name of that epic uh, encyclical that he wrote some years ago. Yeah, and when you, I don't know, it just it makes no sense to me that if you believe in, in that God created the earth, if, if that's your belief system, why would you, why would you want to destroy that <laughs> creation that you you so think is so you know perfect and wonderful? Why would you not want to protect that for your future generations? But well, especially since we were explicitly asked to there on the very first page of the good book, uh, <laughs> God gives us our marching orders and they are, you know, to, um, to take care of this beautiful creation that we've been born into. And man, have we done a poor job of that? Yeah, well, building the largest houses you can and driving the largest vehicles you can does, it doesn't quite jive with that stewardship notion. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid that's true. I'd like to know a little bit more deeply about your climate activism. When when did when did it first really hit you that this was going to be the most important environmental issue of of your time and all time probably? Yeah, well, forget environmental issue. I think it's the most important thing that's ever happened. By far, the biggest thing that humans have ever done. Uh, fairly early on, I wrote the first book about climate change a book called The End of Nature back right. in 1989. And I was in my 20s. And this is, you know, the book did well, it came out in 25 or 26 languages and was a bestseller around the world. Um, but in those days, as a writer, uh, I thought that my job was to write more books, I thought that more to the point, that the way things worked in the world, was that uh, you tried to win the argument, you know, tried to make people understand uh, just how dangerous this was. And if you did, then our leaders would take action because why wouldn't they? And it took me quite a while, more than a decade, I think, to understand that we were, we'd won the, um, 
argument. It was extraordinarily clear to scientists around the world that climate change was very real and dangerous. We'd won the argument, but we were losing the fight because the fight wasn't about data or reason or evidence. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. And it was at that point that I began to realize we'd have to build some power of our own, which means building movements, assembling people uh, to try and stand up to the extraordinary wealth of the fossil fuel industry that's there, you know, where their political power lies. So that's what we began to do um, with seven college students here in Vermont. I founded something called 350.org that became the first iteration of a global climate movement. We've organized about 20,000 demonstrations all over the world in every country but North Korea and sort of spearheaded the fight against the Keystone Pipeline and then launched this massive fossil fuel divestment campaign that's now up to about 40 about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested their holdings in fossil fuel, including, I'm quite happy to say, the, the UC system, um, which was a fairly early on in agreeing that it was stupid and wrong to try and profit from the wreckage of the planet. And that movement building has been wonderful. And the best thing about it is how many other people have followed in and joined in this space. Many of them young people, the, the people who uh, ran those divestment campaigns on college campuses, when they graduated, formed this sunrise movement that brought us the Green New Deal. And it was the Green New Deal in watered down form that finally became this climate bill that Congress passed. And then of course, you know about wonderful leaders like Greta Thunberg, one of my favorite people to work with on the whole planet, a, a, a magnificent human being. She'd be the first to say there are 10,000 Greta's scattered around the earth. And indeed they have about 10 million followers. That's how many kids were out on climate strike in September of 2019 before the pandemic hit. I, I began to worry though, that at some point I was hearing too many people say, Oh, it's up to the next generation to solve these problems. It <clears> seemed both ignoble and impractical. Uh, and I, I think that older people, people in my generation, have particular role to play here too. And that's what much of the work I'm doing now is in, engaged around. If you're just joining us, our guest is environmental activist and author Bill McKibben, and we're talking about his new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. And thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with environmental activist and author Bill McKibben. Give us um, a primer, if you will, for folks are of a certain age, uh, the things that you know you think we should be aware of and, and strive to do. Well, we've formed this new organization called Third Act. Uh, and the 
premise is that we need progressive activism from people over the age of 60. Why? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of us, about 70 million Americans, so bigger than the population of France. Uh, we also really are, are, are more powerful even than those numbers would suggest because we all vote. There's no known way to prevent old people from voting. And so we have extraordinary political influence and we have most of the money. About 70% of the country's financial assets ended up with the boomers or the silent generation. And so um, if we wanna pressure Washington or we wanna pressure Wall Street, well, it'd be good to have some older people. Now, people haven't tried very often to organize this age group because the prevailing theory is that as people age, they become more conservative. And there's a little bit of statistical validity to that. You know, maybe people just have more to protect, but we can't let it be true. And I don't think we need to let it be true with this group because, well, because we're not exactly, you know, your grandparents' grandparents. Um, if you're in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s now, you were around in the first act of your life for this period of epic social and cultural and political transformation. You either participated in or bore witness to that extraordinary period when we started taking women seriously in politics, the apex of the civil rights movement, uh, the first Earth Day, uh, on and on and on. And by the way, if you have any doubts about how extraordinary that period is, look at the things that the retrograde Supreme Court went on the attack against this summer. They're all from that period. The Voting Rights Act of 65, the Gun Control Act of 1968, uh, the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts of 1971 and 72, Roe v. Wade in 1973. Um, so our <laughs> slogan in a sense is, we won these fights once, we can win them again. And indeed in the six or seven months we've been doing this, tens of thousands of people have flooded in. I think to some degree, people realized that in our second act, maybe we were taken as a whole, more interested in consumerism than in citizenship, but that's water under the bridge. And now people are emerging into their third act with resources, with skills acquired across a lifetime, with time, which they may not have had before, and often with kids or grandkids who provide a very concrete meaning for this abstract and tenuous thing we call legacy. I mean, your legacy is the world you leave behind for the people you love the most. And I would add another R to that, a realization that, uh, you know, as you get towards the final third of your life, um, and however many days we, we have, we never know, that this is a very serious issue. And it's not something that you can just kind of sweep under the rug and ignore anymore because it's here and it's now and it's bad. D do you think that climate change is happening faster, uh, more dramatically than even you thought it would a few years ago? Yes. I, I think there's no doubt that scientists underestimated, they got correctly how much the temperature was going to go up, but underestimated how dramatically those rises in temperature would affect the planet. It really just turns out that the planet was a 
very, very sensitive to rises in temperature. And so things that people thought would happen in the 2070s were started happening in the 2010s, you know, um, including things like the rapid, rapid destabilization of fire regimes or the uh, rapid melt of the Arctic and with it the kind of realignment of the jet stream. Climate science is scary to read right now because the phrase that you come across more often than any other is much faster than expected. Yeah, it, it's it's really hit me the last few years that, uh, for example, where I live in nor Northern California, north of Chico, um, the climate here is starting to remind me very much of the climate of my childhood, which was arid Southern California, mm -hmm. because this part of California that used to be very lush, very green, very wet in the winter time, you know, it just, it, it rained and rained and rained and rained and snowed and snowed and snowed. Now we've been in this deep, long drought and I'm seeing it turn to desert before my eyes. Yeah. Um, I was born in Northern California too. And I think there's very few places that have changed quite as much. I mean, California remains wonderful in many ways, but it was always the kind of thing in the back of Americans and maybe people all over the planet's mind as the like the most relaxing place on earth, the real golden state, the idol where you could live out your life in, in ease in that beautiful Mediterranean climate and things. And I don't think psychologically it feels like that anymore. I remember reading a piece a couple of years ago in the San Francisco Chronicle where the editorial board just said, we're, we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that some parts of this state are probably not exactly habitable anymore and that that will increase. I, I'm sure you've seen the computer modeling that shows things like as sea level rises, Southern California loses something like 90% of its beaches in the course of this century. It's hard to imagine quite what California means uh, without beaches. Uh, you know, um, it's sad for me, as someone who loves the High Sierra, uh, to get up there and see those snowfields shrinking uh, away to nothingness uh, year after year after year. Yeah, we we recently talked with Kim Stanley Robinson about his wonderful book, High Sierra, A Love Story. And uh, he really had to, you know, go through some coming to grips with that himself. And, you know, it can be very depressing when a place that you love so deeply is changing so dramatically. Absolutely. And I, I quite love that book of Stan's, I must say. And I have no doubt that one of the reasons he's written so much about climate change in recent years uh, including his magisterial ministry for the future, uh, is because of the experience of watching the Sierras that he, uh, you know, obviously the closest place to his heart, uh, go through those kind of wrenching changes. Yeah, and in, in California, it, it, water has always been a contentious issue. And the Sierra Nevada have always kind of pivoted around that with the the o Owens Valley Aqueduct and you know, Mulholland taking that water, buying up the, the water rights in the Owens Valley and Mono Lake and what's gone on there. It, it's interesting now because, you know, when I think about it, I look at what's going on around me and I say, you people really don't realize that without water, these homes you're building are worthless. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean... 
and I think California, I mean, there's obviously plenty of things that California can do to, to husband its water supply. I mean, I'm pretty sure that it won't be that much longer before California just decides, you know what, we really can't be growing lots of alfalfa and rice and whatever else we're growing that takes that much water. But it's going to be very hard because what happens when you have these periods of extreme high temperature, the kind of heat waves that we're now seeing in California fairly regularly, is that the rate of evaporation just goes through the roof. Yes. It doesn't take very many days with that kind of temperature before everything's just desiccated and dried out to the point where it it's alighted. And, you know, that's a very, very hard physics to overcome. And of course, talking about all of these topics are, they're serious and these topics can be depressing Um, for you, maybe just for me, you know, I'm I'm asking you, Bill, as my my climate mentor, what are some things that you do to do to keep from being overwhelmed by the climate crisis and to be able to live a positive life every day? The good news is that there are lots of things now that we can be doing uh, on a big scale that will really help. And we have some real possibilities. The engineers, many of them in California, have really done their job over the last decade. They've dropped the price of renewable energy 90%. Sometime in the last three or four years, something very new happened on this earth. The cheapest way to generate power became pointing a sheet of glass at the sun. And that's a no small miracle. That's a kind of water into wine kind of alchemy. And and so there's no longer a financial or technological obstacle to dramatically scaling up renewable energy here and around the world. California's begun to do some of that and provide some leadership. And I, we're grateful that uh, everyone, that you know, the governor and others have started putting serious money into this and started shutting down some of those oil wells around California that uh, are, you know, are, are a symbol of real shame now. Um, um, we need to figure out how to make that happen at a very rapid rate. The climate scientists have told us that we need to cut emissions in half by 2030 to have a chance of meeting the kind of targets we set in Paris. Um, so that's what we will try to do. And that's not far away. It's not far. By my watch, it's about seven years and two months. So, uh, you know, it requires a lot more nimbleness than humans have shown heretofore in dealing with this crisis. It really requires us to operate on sort of the schedule we operated at at the beginning of World War II, you know, um, when California was transformed as the defense industry figured out how to build things on the scale that we needed. Uh, that's what we need again. And this time it's all of our survival that's at stake. Well, and one good thing that there are the people who voted for Ronald Reagan, now they have solar panels on top of their houses too. So there is that. Yeah. I, I mean, look, the, the polling data shows that solar panels are the one thing that unite uh, 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 people across the political spectrum. Everybody, by large margins, likes them and wants them. Nobody likes to pay electric bills. Well, I think truthfully that they, they may appeal to different people for different reasons. I think conservatives kind of like the idea that 
their home is now fully their fortress and they need no outside help at all. And I think, you know, liberals sort of, oh, you know, the groovy power of the sun is uniting us all. Um, you know, that's all right. One can work with those kind of differences. Um, and and it, it, the power of the sun is a good thing. We're reminded of it this year because, among other things, uh, it, it, a world that we run on renewable energy is a world where people like Vladimir Putin have much less purchase. He was able to invade Ukraine because of the money he takes in from oil and gas. They constitute 60% of his export earnings. And his main weapon for two decades has been a threat to shut off gas to the Western Europe. So, uh, you know, a great thing about the sun and the wind is that not Vladimir Putin, not the king of Saudi Arabia, not the Koch brothers, nobody can shut them off, you know. Um, um, and it, it, one more good reason to be moving hard and fast in that direction. Well, we're almost out of time, but before we let you go, uh, looking ahead for you personally, what's next for Bill McKibben? What's some of the, what's some things on your horizon that you wanna you want to accomplish? We're trying hard to make this third act thing work. That's my volunteer work now, and it's quite consuming. And one of the things that we're working hard on around climate is to get people to put real pressure on the big banks. Uh, Chase, City, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America, the four biggest American banks, are the four biggest funders of the fossil fuel industry. They've lent them more than a trillion dollars since the Paris Accords were signed. And that's why they can keep building pipelines and on and on and on. So we're working, we've got people signing this pledge that they will cut up their credit cards from those guys if they don't change. That'll be the next date on the calendar in March, I think. That's when we'll be doing this thing and trying to start building momentum for a real campaign to force them to think differently about the world around them. Uh, uh, we need everybody, including big rich banks, headed in the right direction. And and so, and, and happily, we have some banks people can turn to, including in California, Beneficial State Bank, which has been a huge, interesting, progressive. Uh, bank and increasingly California banks like First Republic or Silicon Valley Bank, which have very few ties to the fossil fuel industry. So this is for me some of the next work to be done. Yes, and as I always like to point out, um, it's really not good for business to destroy your planet. <laughs> you would think that some sooner or later it will dawn on people that the uh, that the economy is a subset of the environment and not the other way around. <laughs> Thanks again to our guest, Bill McKibben. You can learn more about his work on climate change and social justice at BillMcKibben.com. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>